Hello everyone and welcome to the June 8th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal sanctioned an injured worker and his lawyer for filing a frivolous civil case and appeal. Here's what happened in the case of Lopez versus the Fischel Company. Lopez was a passenger in a big rig truck driven by his co-worker that was hit by another vehicle which caused injuries to Lopez. Lopez, in propria persona, filed a form civil complaint for negligence against his employer, who filed a demur to the complaint on the grounds that the Workers' Compensation Act barred a civil action. The applicant did not oppose the demur, and the court sustained it on the basis of the workers' comp exclusive remedy after taking judicial notice of his pending work comp claim. Lopez was granted conditional leave to amend if he could properly allege his employer had no workers' compensation insurance, thereby accepting the case from the workers' compensation statutory scheme. Later, an attorney filed an amended complaint for him, alleging the employer negligently hired the driver and that the employer was self-insured and had used that position to deny Lopez medical treatment. The court again sustained a demur to the amended complaint without leave to amend based upon the exclusive remedy of workers' compensation law. The dismissal was sustained by the Court of Appeal in the unpublished case of Lopez versus the Fischel Company. The court concluded that there is no question that the court properly sustained the demur without leave to amend. Plaintiff alleged he was defendant's employee and was injured while on the job. The court took judicial notice of plaintiff's workers' compensation claim form and the compromise and release form showing the claim was settled. With few exceptions, the workers' compensation statutes provide an exclusive remedy for job-related injuries. Thus, absent an exception, a civil action may not be filed against the employer. The trial court granted plaintiff leave to amend if he could plead such an exception, but he made no such allegation in the amended complaint. Plaintiff asserts defendant is self-insured, complaining it refused to authorize over $700,000 for his necessary medical treatment. But the compromise and release order shows the claim was fully settled. Any unhappiness with the result cannot be litigated in this civil action. On the issue of sanctions, the court noted there was no valid basis for filing the complaint to begin with, much less the appeal. The workers' compensation body of law makes clear the statutory scheme is exclusive absent a narrow set of exceptions. Sanctions should be awarded only in the most egregious cases, and all of the circumstances of this case convince the court that this is such a case. This case contained no unique issues or complicated facts, nor was there an argument that existing law should be extended modified or reversed, as might justify filing the appeal. Thus, sanctions were awarded against Lopez and against his lawyer, or both. The case was remanded to the trial court to determine against whom the sanctions are to be awarded and the amount of the sanctions. Lopez was represented by the Justice Law Center and attorney Lee H. 
Durst when he filed the appeal. Aggressive claimant attorneys have launched constitutional attacks on workers' compensation reforms in a number of states, including California and Florida. The California Court of Appeal has scheduled oral argument this September in the case of Francis Stevens v. WCAB, a case that challenges the IMR process. Stevens is now set for oral argument on September 30. Another similar constitutional challenge is working its way through the 3rd District Court of Appeal that recently agreed to hear the case of Ramirez versus the State of California Department of Health Care Services. In Florida, two high-profile workers' comp cases sit on the desks of the Florida Supreme Court. One is Castellanos versus Nextdoor Company and the other Westfall versus the City of St. Petersburg. Both cases could have a negative impact on the Florida workers' comp system. The workers' compensation system in Florida, as in California, has continuously come under scrutiny from opponents looking to overhaul the reforms that were put in place in each state and in Florida in 2003 by Governor Jeb Bush. In the Castellanos case, the Florida Supreme Court will decide if the amendments to the Florida attorney fee law are unconstitutional. The court will now decide if the law prevents certain cases or claimants access to courts as allowed under the Constitution. The National Employment Lawyers Association has given its support, asking the Florida Supreme Court to overturn a statutory limitation on prevailing party attorney fees in workers' comp cases. The formula for calculating attorney fees in Florida's work comp statute awarded the attorney in the Castellanos case $164 in fees for 107 hours of legal work. In the Westfall case, the Court of Appeal found that the law setting a 104-week limit on temporary disability benefits was unjust since it puts injured workers like Westfall in a no-win situation of being unable to receive temporary benefits while also not being eligible for permanent disability. The appeals court in Florida concluded that the Florida statute that limited an injured worker to no more than 104 weeks of TD benefits, even when he is still totally disabled, was unconstitutional. The court re-established, however, the previously existing 260-week limit. After rehearing, the Florida court reinterpreted the law to mean workers could apply for and receive permanent benefits at the end of the 104-week period because they are, quote, deemed to be at maximum medical improvement, end quote, as a matter of law. The Florida Supreme Court decided to hear both cases. Business groups credit the Florida reforms for helping drive down insurance rates more than 50% and welcoming significant cost savings that allow for the purchase of better policies and coverage for employees. Insurers credit the Florida reforms for opening up the marketplace and creating a healthy and competitive environment. The medical community also credits the Florida reforms for adequate medical reimbursement and access to care. But what you won't hear is trial lawyers crediting either California or Florida reforms for much of anything. Stakeholders in both California and Florida are closely watching these cases, which should be decided in the coming months. 
And now our fraud report. Litigation by dozens of insurance companies over counterfeit spinal hardware implants have now spread to 17 hospitals nationwide. 15 surgeons and 17 hospitals, along with more than a dozen other people, are accused of participating in the counterfeit spinal hardware ring. The lawsuit, which was filed in California last February on behalf of dozens of insurance companies, was recently unsealed, providing details of a massive alleged healthcare fraud scheme and conspiracy. Allegedly, owners and operators of California-based Spinal Solutions manufactured faked spinal implants and, quote, insidiously commingled fake implantable hardware with genuine parts. The fake parts were then allegedly implanted into patients at hospitals in California, Texas, Maryland, Wisconsin, and Nevada. Production of the counterfeit rods and cages allegedly began in 2007 at a machine and tool shop in Temecula, California. And doctors, hospitals, and distributors began a five-year relationship with Spinal Solutions to market the fake parts. Allegedly, kickbacks were paid to surgeons who would then use the fake products. One example was Maryland surgeon Randy Davis, who allegedly was paid nearly a half million dollars in kickbacks in exchange for getting the products used in surgeries at the University of Maryland's Baltimore Washington Medical Center. Nevada surgeons Jack Swinder, Grover, and Patrick McNulty are accused of taking kickbacks in return for implanting the fake parts into unsuspecting patients in the Nevada Orthopedic and Spine Center. Wisconsin-based surgeon Cully White is accused of implanting the hardware for kickbacks into patients at Milwaukee's St. Francis Hospital and Aurora Street St. Luke's Medical Center. Several California surgeons are also named in the complaint. Surgeons named in the suit are also accused of accepting cash, free airplane rides, meals, vacations, and other forms of entertainment in exchange for referring patients to certain hospitals where they would get the fake parts implanted. Those hospitals are also defendants in the complaint. Diagnostic facilities are accused of also taking kickbacks in return for false reports justifying the need for surgeries. The lawsuit was not a shock to California spinal surgeon Scott Letterhouse, who, as president of the Association for Medical Ethics, has been a watchdog regarding spinal surgeries. He says the spine industry is corrupt and it needs a washing from top to bottom. The industry has seen significant growth in sales going from $250 million in 1994 to $7 billion in 2009. And there's big money in the spinal hardware business. Six Spinal Solution screw caps cost about $3,000 to make, but they were sold to a hospital for about $17,000 and then billed to an insurance carrier for $50,000. And in medical news, new research shows that American patients undergoing orthopedic surgery receive more pain treatment but less pain relief than compared to orthopedic patients internationally. And poorly controlled pain after surgery is a major problem internationally despite efforts to improve it.
American hospitals regularly assess pain because it is a requirement for accreditation. Using this data, researchers compared patient-reported outcomes in a pooled patient sample from four American and 45 international hospitals. The study found that American patients, contrary to prediction, had higher mean worst pain scores than international patients. These findings were surprising, and so the authors did further analysis to check pain management practices provided to American patients as compared with international patients. They found that American patients were actually receiving more opioid medication in the different phases of surgery, before hospitalization, just before surgery, and during the first day after surgery. Since high amounts of opioids can sensitize patients to nociception, the authors then checked to see if American patients receiving the lowest opioid doses also experienced more pain. They found that 25% of USA patients receiving the lowest doses of opioids had a higher worst pain score than the 25% of international patients receiving the lowest doses of opioids. This indicates that sensitization by opioids is not necessarily the reason for the observed differences. The researchers conclude that the higher mean worst pain score in the USA patients on the first day after orthopedic surgery does not have a simple explanation. USA patients receive more pain medication than international patients and yet report worse pain. Thus, the findings of this study are puzzling as American patients were treated according to current clinical practice guidelines to a greater extent compared to international patients. More investigation is therefore warranted. The White House Forum on Antibiotic Stewardship brought together 150 representatives from food companies, retailers, drug makers, farmers, medical societies, and others to discuss solutions to antibiotic overuse in livestock, animal feed, and humans. The forum builds on a number of steps government has taken to combat antibiotic resistance. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that drug-resistant bacteria, which stops responding to the medicines designed to kill them, causes 2 million illnesses and about 23,000 deaths each year in the United States alone. CDC officials say that antibiotic resistance might be the single most important infectious disease threat today. If we lose antibiotics, the medicine chest will be empty and it will not only undermine our ability to treat routine infections, but it will also undermine much of modern medicine. We risk turning back the clock to a world where simple infections can be fatal just as they were a century ago. Among the topics under discussion will be developing guidelines for recommendations to control the overuse of antibiotics in hospitals and curtail their use in food animals. Separately, the Food and Drug Administration will announce that it has finalized changes to the Veterinary Feed Directive Regulation. 
This is an important piece of the FDA's overall strategy to promote the judicious use of medically important antibiotics in food-producing animals as it facilitates bringing the feed use of such antibiotics under the oversight of licensed veterinarians. Some stakeholders are now questioning if inactivity rather than injurious activity might be the new basis of continuous trauma claims. This question arises after a new California Supreme Court case once again reiterated the minimal standard of causation required for a workers' compensation claim. The court reversed the Court of Appeals judgment in the case of South Coast Framing versus WCAB and pointed out that unlike tort law, causation and workers' compensation need only be a contributing cause. With that in mind, the industry is constantly aware that continuous trauma claims can be established for a number of physical stressors in the workplace that contribute to an injury. But now, a new report may suggest that being inactive and doing nothing physical at work may similarly contribute to a litany of physical problems. People who work desk-based jobs should aim to stand and do light activity for a total of four hours throughout the day, according to an international panel of experts. Too much sitting has been linked to poor health outcomes over the past several years. Still, no one has set a baseline for just how much time workers should spend on their feet each day. This specific recommendation may change as more evidence emerges, but experts say two to four hours per day is a good starting point. Similar to prolonged periods of sitting, the panel said that long periods of standing should also be avoided. Employers may help their employees achieve the two to four hours of standing or light activity by changing how and when people can take breaks that involve standing and movement or by adopting desk designs and technologies that allow people to perform their work more easily in a standing position. There is good evidence now that too much sitting is associated with generally poorer health outcomes in the long run, including poor bone health, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and certain cancers. Individuals who are not gaining the benefits of a physically active lifestyle may at least mitigate some of the health hazards associated with physical inactivity by standing more during the day. And in regulatory news, experts say that Obamacare premiums may increase as much as 30% in 2016. Healthcare costs are the primary reason for price increases in workers' compensation premiums, but that is not the only market reeling from increased medical costs. According to preliminary information published by the White House, dozens of health insurers selling plans under Obamacare have requested hefty premium increases for 2016. The insurers have cited higher-than-expected care costs from customers they gained under the Obamacare's coverage expansion and the rising cost of prescription drugs and other expenses as reasons. Among the market leaders, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina is seeking a roughly 26% premium increase, 
while plans in Illinois and Florida, among other states, are asking for hikes of 20% or more. In Pennsylvania, Highmark Health Insurance Company is asking for a 30% increase. The preliminary requests were, were announced as the Supreme Court prepares to rule on the validity of Obamacare's tax credits to offset the cost of premiums for lower-income consumers in most states. Individual health insurance policies are a relatively small slice of the overall market. Many more people are insured through an employer, and it is not clear whether any of these preliminary rate hikes will stick. Regulators in many states have the power to reject price increases, and many who don't are expected to at least pressure insurers to soften their plans. Health insurance price hikes have been the subject of growing scrutiny for years. Obamacare only requires insurers to report proposed hikes of 10% or more. That's only a partial picture of the market that tilts toward a worst-case scenario. Insurers will spend the next several weeks talking to regulators about their premiums before rates are finalized later this summer. Consumers should start learning how rates may change for their specific plan by early October. That will give them several weeks to shop for the best deal before November 15, which is when people can start signing up for coverage. The city of Santa Monica says that after three years of significant increases, workers' compensation claims fell 15% in the second half of last year. Although claim frequency remained relatively stable in most city departments, it declined within the big blue bus system. The city has self-insurance programs to provide for general liability, bus and automobile liability, and workers' compensation claims. The city retains self-insurance up to $750,000 for workers' compensation. Then, the California State Association of Counties Excess Insurance Authority covers up to an additional $4 million for workers' compensation and arranges for excess of workers' compensation over $5 million. California City's excess liability is a joint powers authority of 12 medium-sized California municipalities, and it's a member of the California State Association of Counties Excess Insurance Authority for the purposes of providing access to excess workers' compensation coverage for major employee injury risks through a program of pooled self-insurance, reinsurance, and insurance on a risk-sharing basis. City officials say that the significant decline in claim frequency represents one of the few positive developments in that the city has experienced relative to workers' compensation for quite some time. The city has reason to be cautiously optimistic that workers' compensation costs will stabilize over the long term. 18 members of the police department have undergone work-related surgery since July, more than double the previous year's total. A majority of the surgeries impacted sworn officers who get all of their pay while recovering, unlike non-sworn workers who get two-thirds of their pay. Additionally, those absences have to be filled to maintain patrol staffing levels, so City Hall pays more in overtime.
State officials think the bump in surgeries and longer recovery times are the result of an aging workforce. Nearly 40% of the sworn officers are more than 45 years old. City Hall spends a lot of money just litigating all of the claims. So in July of last year, they started a pilot program within the city police department that incentivizes employees who forego attorneys. City officials cite a 2014 California Workers' Compensation Institute study that found that litigated claims cost $56,000 more to resolve than non-litigated cases. Seven fewer claims were litigated in the second half of last year when compared to the second half of the prior year under this program, according to city officials. This, they say, could result in nearly $400,000 in savings for City Hall. City officials are continuing to place injured Big Blue Bus workers in light or modified duty jobs while they recover. They said, studies show that recovery times are longer for employees who stay at home during the recovery process. City officials are now putting bus driver job candidates through physical tests to be sure they can handle the work. The Obama administration, with support from House Republicans, is pushing for reductions to workers' compensation for federal employees to the consternation of fellow Democrats and union allies. The Republican chairman of a House Education and the Workforce Subcommittee cited concerns that workers' comp benefits are too generous and can discourage an employee's return to work. But there is assuredly opposition. The top Democrat on the full committee says he's disappointed that the Department of Labor would come forward for the third time in the past five years with a proposal to cut benefits for injured federal workers. He says the proposal is not evidence-based and any justification has been completely debunked by the Government Accountability Office. Currently, the compensation level for injured workers with no dependents is two-thirds of their pre-injury wages. But for federal employees with dependents, which is about 64% of all claimants, the compensation level is 75%. Among several proposals, one of them includes that the Labor Department cut rates to 70% for all categories of workers. This would mean reduced benefits for the majority of recipients. The director of the Labor Department's Office of Workers' Compensation Programs claims that the 75% compensation rate can result in benefits greater than the injured worker's usual take-home pay. The Obama administration says the current program, with its tax-free compensation, can encourage workers to stay off the jobs longer than necessary. It is estimated that the savings of the Labor Department's proposals would be $360 million over a 10-year period. That is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. 
Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarrett and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news. Thank you.